After such an amazing uh, performance, it seems a shame to even speak. But we have the word of God to proclaim, so we will carry on. When our oldest son was born, something that struck me as very strange, and I, I knew it was normal, but I still found it strange, was the number of people who were coming up and congratulating me. Well, again, I know it's a custom, but I found it kind of humorous because I really hadn't done all that much. It was not exactly a hardship. I had not carried him inside me for nine months. I had not labored over him for 20-some hours. I'd had to go shopping. Right? I'd had to build some furniture. I'd had to install some car seats. You know, and, and inexplicably, I'd also apparently had to redecorate the kitchen because he needed that. But other than that, it was not really a tremendous effort on my part, not really congratulations-worthy in my mind. And I wondered whether some of those kind folks would come back and visit me in 20-some years to congratulate me when he graduates or when he gets that first real job or when he becomes a a responsible contributor to society or, or finds his own unique area of ministry. I started to wonder at those times how many people would, were going back and congratulating my father for three sons who turned out relatively well. And it got me to thinking that as a country, as a society, we're really good at getting excited about newborn babies, right? And we should, right? There's a tremendous promise and excitement there. But, but how often are we giving thoughts to the men or women that they would grow up to become? How often do we go go back and and give thoughts to those parents when those children turn out well. And I bring this up, I think it's on my mind this week, because it's this time of year when we talk so much about baby Jesus. We emphasize the infant in the manger, and and it is absolutely a miracle. We should be talking and celebrating this, because on that very first Christmas night, the eternal God of the universe entered into this world as a baby under situations so humble that he had to be laid to rest in a food trough. But as miraculous as this was, I think it's important that we understand the celebration of Jesus' birth cannot be primarily about that baby in the manger. If it was only about that, I don't think we'd be celebrating it 2,000 years later. We have to, as we celebrate, look ahead to who he grew up to be, and what he did for us. All throughout this Advent, we have been stepping back from the hustle and bustle of the holidays, which can be such a crazy time around here, and trying to consider what the fuss is all about. Why are we so stirred up and excited at this time of the year? Our goal is to remind ourselves, refresh ourselves, rekindle our excitement about why we care so deeply for this special season. When we began, we first considered how Christmas inaugurated the ultimate defeat of evil by God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then we considered how Christmas ushered in God's righteous reign over the world and Christ's righteous reign in our hearts. But I want to say that there is more to Christ and to Christmas than just these awesome displays of God's mighty power. We should always remember these. We must never lose sight of the power and the transcendence of God, but but at the same time, that can't be the only thing we look at. 
Because if we only focus on that, we lose a lot of the personal impact of that very first Christmas. Because the birth of Jesus wasn't just about the coming of a king. It was also the long-awaited arrival of a good shepherd. A tender, loving, merciful, faithful, nurturing, nourishing, sacrificing protector for all his sheep. And we can understand this because of a prophecy that took place some six centuries before the first Christmas. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 34. This is our passage for this morning, verses 11 through 16, and then verses 23 and 24. I'll put it up, but it is split over two slides, so you may want to follow along with your Bible or your phone. Speaking on behalf of God, Ezekiel says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the stray. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. God gave Ezekiel this message at a time when the people of Israel quite literally believed their world had come to an end. It was 585 B.C. Jerusalem had just been destroyed the previous year by the Babylonians. The temple of God, which was very much not only the heart and soul of the nation, but was really their identity as a people, lay in ruins. The people themselves had been scattered throughout the world by wave after wave of what today we would call ethnic cleansing. And at this moment of darkest despair, God gave Ezekiel this amazing prophecy that I've just read. A promise of a beautiful future. Restoration, mercy, care, and healing in the loving arms of God himself. It would be nearly 600 years before this prophecy would be fulfilled. Until that miraculous night when the long-awaited Good Shepherd arrived at Christmas. And these are the two overriding truths I want to focus on this morning from this passage. That God promised to shepherd his people himself. And that at Christmas, the good shepherd arrived. First, God promised to shepherd his people himself. This is very much the promise of this passage. 
And to fully understand the implications of everything that he has said in these verses that I just read, we have to back up a few verses. Consider what he said just prior. In those verses, God made abundantly clear that the human shepherds, and by this he means the national leaders of Israel, the kings and the priests, had utterly and completely failed. Verses 2 through 4 and verse 10 address them very directly. Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that there may not be food for them. God speaks very bluntly to the national leaders of Israel. I am against the shepherds. I am against you. He promises to strip them of their position because they have utterly failed. As shepherds, their their task was supposed to be far more than just ruling over them and exploiting them. And yet that's all they'd wanted to do. Shepherding is to be about nourishing those sheep that can't find food for themselves, nurturing those that need a little extra love, healing those that are sick and injured, caring for the weak, and seeking out those that have wandered away or fallen behind. And instead of doing any of that, generation after generation of kings and priests and false prophets had served only themselves. They had preyed on the flock that God had given them and enriched themselves at their expense. And so here at a moment when the kingdom of Judah lies in ruins, and the kings themselves were dethroned, and the priests were without a temple to serve in, God announced that they were fired. And instead, he promised to shepherd his people himself. He point by point reverses the failings of the shepherds. In verse 11 and 12, he promised to search for and rescue his sheep wherever they might be. In verse 13, he promised to bring them home and feed them. In verse 14, he promised to give them a good pasture. In verse 15, he promised to give them rest. In verse 16, he promised to bring back the strayed, heal the injured, nurture and strengthen the weak and the needy, and destroy the unjust and the abusive who are among them. God promised to provide all of that care and all of that nurture that the selfish and the ungodly kings of Israel and Judah had failed to provide for centuries. And yet even as God explicitly promised in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Just a few short verses later, he makes a promise that would seem to contradict this. In verse 23, God promised that I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, God wasn't promising to bring King David back from the dead to shepherd the nation of Israel. He's promising to raise up a singular new shepherd like David who would truly care for and nurture his people. 
but he had just promised that he would be the shepherd. And so I have to assume that for centuries, the people of Israel had to view this as a mystery. How could God possibly resolve this tension and be both the direct shepherd of Israel and set up a man like David who would be the shepherd of Israel? And that brings us to the second great truth this morning. It is the solution to this puzzle. It is the answer to the riddle. That is, at Christmas, the good shepherd arrived, who was God himself, and yet a man like David. This Christmas, we mustn't just celebrate a miraculous birth and stop there. We need to remember that there is far more to the story of Christmas than just the events of one night. We celebrate Christmas not because of the baby, but because of who the baby grew up to be. As much as we cherish the birth of the baby, we must celebrate even more the coming of the good shepherd God had promised through Ezekiel. It is not an accident that when Jesus grew up, in John chapter 10, starting in verse 10, he said this about himself. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying here. What the scriptural accounts of the first Christmas so meticulously demonstrate, as we read them carefully, is that Jesus is both the descendant of David, Right? That's a big part of why we have those genealogies that we sometimes like to skip over as we read them, because they seem long and the names are odd. Right? That is the, one of the key messages of those genealogies. And at the same time, the accounts make it clear, he is the Son of God himself. He is God in the flesh. And so what Jesus is saying about himself in John 10 is that he is the fulfillment of all that Ezekiel promised. That as the descendant of David, Jesus is the good shepherd of God's flock. And that as God himself, Jesus is the good shepherd of our hearts. As the good shepherd, Jesus indeed laid down his life to protect us, to protect his flock from our two most fundamental enemies, our two most basic problems. You see, each person is born into this world with two problems. The first is that we're going to die someday. The second is that we are born with a desire to do the wrong thing. We have a desire to sometimes just look out for number one. To do whatever pleases us, comforts us, benefits or amuses us, regardless of whether it is right or wrong, whether it is helpful or harmful, whether it is hurtful. We are each born with a powerful desire to rebel against the incredibly high standards of behavior, of thinking, of speaking, of morality, of ethics, of the holy and perfect creator of the universe. And it is a desire that is so powerful and so natural to us that no matter how hard we try, there are going to be times when we give in. We give in to that voice 
I guarantee it. And these two problems, death and sin, are related. They are related because sin is something that the holy, perfect, all-knowing God of the universe cannot tolerate, cannot permit in his presence. And yet, because of the first problem, someday we're going to die, and we would really, really like to be in his presence. As 1 John 1.5 affirms, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And yet, unfortunately, we each have the darkness of sin in our lives, whether we like to admit it or not. It doesn't really matter whether we like to admit it. 1 John 1.8 continues, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're not fooling anybody else. We're certainly not fooling God, but we may be fooling ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But because we're all going to die today, this is a very bad problem. Because when we do, if there is sin in our lives, and I guarantee there is, then there is no hope of entering into the presence of God. We deserve only to be separated from Him. So death and sin... Sin and death, these are the two problems we cannot solve ourselves. It does not matter how successful we are. It doesn't matter how good we think we are, how moral we think we are. It doesn't matter how hard we try to be good. It doesn't matter how rich or famous or smart we think we are. We cannot solve these problems on our own. And that's where the Good Shepherd came in. Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one of God, the the Christ, fully human, descendant of David, yet fully God. Jesus, that baby in the manger that we celebrate, grew up to live a perfect life. A life that while he was certainly tempted, he did not give in. He lived a life worthy of the presence of God. And yet for all that, for all of his perfection, all of his power, all of his wisdom, all of his miracles, we need to also remember that at Christmas, this good shepherd was also born the perfect lamb of God. That perfect, holy, sinless, infinite sacrifice. The perfect God-man who shed his blood on that Roman cross to bear the sins of the entire world on himself. The one final perfect sacrifice needed to pay the penalty of all that sin that we accumulate throughout our lives of doing whatever it is we feel like doing rather than whatever it is God desires for us to do. And when Jesus died, he took, his, took our sins upon his broken body. Right? His body that was nailed to the cross, our sins were nailed with him. And then he did exactly what he had predicted he would do at the moment he said, I am the good shepherd. He said at that moment, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And just as he said, Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday and when he did so, he utterly defeated sin, and death for all time. So that all who turn to Him in faith as Lord and Savior have with 100% certainty. Right? How often do you get that in this life? There is no fine print. 100% certainty. 
have their sins forgiven, their shame washed away forever, and will live eternally in the presence of God. And so Jesus, the Good Shepherd, he solved both of our major problems. He defeated our most basic enemies as he explained that faith in him solves the problem of death in John 3, 14 and 15. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, lifted up on the cross, lifted up from the grave, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then as 1 John 1, 9 explains, he solved the problem of sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so through faith in the Good Shepherd, we gain eternal life, we gain forgiveness of sins, and this is incredible. But as the commercials would say, but wait, there's more. The Good Shepherd is far more than just the source of eternal life. Because as he said in John chapter 10, right, as saying he is the Good Shepherd, he came not just to give life, but to give abundant life. He gives not only preservation of life, not only a good life, he gives the best life to his followers. He actively works to make our lives better if we permit him to. He is the fulfillment item by item of all the things that God promised in this prophecy through Ezekiel. As God promised, Jesus, the good shepherd, seeks after the lost and brings back the strays. No matter how far we might stray, no matter how far someone we love might seem from God, no matter how low our faith may run at times, no matter what pit of sin we get ourselves into, as the good shepherd, Jesus, seeks us out. So if you're feeling lost this morning, a little bewildered, if you feel distant from God, realize Jesus is seeking you out. And that is true every day. He is seeking us out to restore us to his flock. Luke 19.10 assures us, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. For a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what we have gotten ourselves into, right? And we can get ourselves into some stuff. Jesus stands ready to reach out to us, to pick us up, to dust us off, to embrace us, to restore us. And all we have to do is turn to him, cry out to him, trust in him, and he is faithful. As God promised, Jesus, the good shepherd, also strengthens the weak. When we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, his spirit enters into us forever, and he is always present to transform us, to strengthen us, empower us, and make us more and more like him as we follow him. So when the day comes when we feel like we are at the breaking point, or that we are already past the breaking point, and maybe that day is right here, right now for you, if we lean on the Good Shepherd, we will find, as Paul did in Philippians 4, in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. 
As God promised, Jesus, the good shepherd, heals the sick and the injured in spirit. He may not choose to cure our physical illnesses because this life is is temporary. His objective is the next life. But we can be sure that as we suffer, as we are sick, as we are in a situation, that he is right there beside us, grieving, sad, caring for us. And that moreover, he is the all-encompassing cure for what ails our aching and broken spirits. That our sins, our shame, our hurts, our humiliations, our failures, our weaknesses, our suffering, all can be turned over to him, to Jesus, the Good Shepherd. That if we give it to him, if we embrace him, we love him, that he has already given us what we need, because in exchange, he has already given us his transforming spirit, whose fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the balms and the cures for a hurting spirit. As God promised, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, nourishes and feeds us. It's no accident that as he was walking around in Israel 2,000 years ago that that he he fed first a flock of 5,000 Israelites and later a flock of 4,000 Gentiles. He's making it clear his power, his provision, but also the fact that he is indeed the one who nourishes and feeds throughout the land of Israel. And Jesus still feeds his followers today spiritually, as he said in John 6, I in the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. As promised, Jesus the Good Shepherd protects us. His Spirit guards us, seals us, and guarantees the salvation of all those who trust in him as Lord and Savior. That we need never doubt or fear. Paul explains in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And finally, as God promised, Jesus the Good Shepherd gives us rest. And what could perhaps be more precious at this incredibly busy time of year, here in this incredibly busy region of the world, than rest? So if you are weary this morning, perhaps from preparing for the holidays, perhaps from illness, perhaps from cold weather or hot weather or whatever the weather is, at any given moment of the day in the past week, I think we've experienced almost everything, whether it's the long nights and the short days, whether it's stress at work or brokenness at home in your family, whether it's the ongoing illness of a loved one or the recognition of your own mortality, lean on these words of the Good Shepherd. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that 
is what the fuss is all about at Christmas. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of the tremendous gift you gave us at Christmas. When your Son, eternal, present at the creation of the world, stepped into this world, assumed the nature of a human being, came in as a vulnerable baby, and grew up to be the most amazing man who ever lived. Lord, we thank you for his kingship. We thank you for his victory over sin and death. We thank you for his sacrifice that won those things. We thank you for his sacrifice that won for us who believe in him forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, we thank you for him that he is the good shepherd who fulfills your promises. That as we suffer, as we are weak, as we are hungry, he nourishes us. Lord, as we leave this place, give us your eyes to see those around us who are burdened, who are broken, who are weary. Give us the sensitivity and the courage to share with them the news of the Good Shepherd whom you sent at Christmas. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The call this morning is very simple. If you need the Good Shepherd, call on him. If you need him as Lord and Savior because you've never believed in him before, take that step. Believe in him. Surrender your life to him. Let him be your Lord and your Savior and your Shepherd. Now, if he's already your Savior, but you need him to shepherd you in some way today, whether it's to draw you back close to him, whether it's to strengthen you, whether it's to heal your aching spirit, to nourish and encourage you in a world that is discouraging, or simply to give you rest, I invite you to use these next few minutes to pray. Do that as we sing. You can pray from your seats. You can come to the front here and pray in the front row. He is your good shepherd. He loves you. He wants to do these things for you. You just need to ask.